Thank you, guys. Our scripture reading this morning, as we continue our series from Luke's gospel, comes from Luke chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 49 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, That's page 1036, if you're um, using the ESV Pew Bible in front of you. That's uh, Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Peace is something that we are all looking for. Uh, Here's a few Slogans you've probably heard, give peace a chance. Peace in the Middle East. Peace begins with you. To reach peace, teach peace. And those slogans are endless. Even the uh, Miss America pageants are notorious for the world peace answer that's, uh, that's always given. But what do people want? Well, I think people want peace in relationships with other people. People want peace between uh, divergent, separate people groups. People want peace with other nations. They want a lack of violence. They want stability. Jesus is described in Isaiah as the Prince of Peace. In Luke's gospel, at the incarnation, the the birth of Jesus, the angel and the multitude of heaven sings glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so people associate Jesus with peace, right? Well, then what in the world is happening here? Jesus says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. How do we make sense of what seems to be in conflict? What peace is he talking about and what division? 
Well, let's look at our text this morning as we seek to know and to understand and to believe what Jesus is teaching us through his word. Let's pray together. Father, uh, I echo Rachel's earlier prayer that um, you, Holy Spirit, would come and uh, open our eyes to see the truth from your word. Father, that um, your spirit would stir within us. Uh, that we would not uh, walk away from this teaching unchanged, but that it would challenge, it would equip. Uh, Father, it would, equ- it would do its purposes for which it's set out. So, Father, we invite you to come and do your work amongst us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Here, Jesus is talking about judgment. In Old Testament uh, language, fire is associated with judgment. Now, some would say that this is about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who comes down as tongues of fire at Pentecost, but that doesn't seem to be the, the, the primary major emphasis here. The main emphasis seems to be on eternal judgment. And no matter how much we may try to avoid it, the Bible keeps bringing it up. The doctrine of eternal judgment is one of, if not the most difficult uh, issues in all of Scripture. Well, what are we to think of it? What are we to make of it? In fact, we get a description of what Jesus thinks of the very issue. Now, one might expect... That Jesus, after saying, I come to cast fire on the earth, that he would follow that with, uh, that he didn't want it to be so. Uh, Or that he does it reluctantly. Or, Or that he has no real desire for that. But instead he says, and would that it were already kindled. Meaning that he cannot wait for that day. How I wish it were already kindled. And this is expressing to us his deep desire. So what do we make of that? R.C. Sproul tells a story of uh, when he was a student in seminary and one of his uh, fellow students asked their professor, if I go to heaven and find that my mother is not there, that she is in hell, how could I possibly be happy in heaven? The professor looked at the student and said, Young man, don't you know that when you get to heaven, you will be so purified from sin, so sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that you will be so much more concerned about the glory of God than you will be about the well-being of your mother, that you will see that your mother is in hell and rejoice to know it. And when he said that, there was an audible gasp that came from the students in the class. (gasps) And one of the students laughs out loud. He giggles. And that student was Dr. Sproul. So the professor said, what's so funny, Mr. Sproul? To which he responded, nothing. I just can't believe you said what you just said. We have more. That was a joke. I mean, that was, anyway. Like you have to know Dr. Sproul's sense of humor to, to pick up on that. But here's the reality is that we have far more in common with this sinful world and the people in it than we do with the perfect holy God. 
and our concerns tend to always favor the side of those that are like us. What the professor was saying was that at some point, we will be so in love with the glory of God that when we see the vindication of his righteousness and his holiness and the punishment of wickedness, that we will be able to rejoice in it. This is the same Jesus, because I think you can take that down uh, an unhelpful, unhealthy trajectory. But this is the same Jesus who is perfect, whose bread was to do, as Rachel prayed, the bread was to do the will of the Father. At the same time, he is a man of sorrows and of deep compassion, as we will see in a few weeks in chapter 13, when Jesus sees the fate of, of uh, Israel, of Jerusalem, and what they face. He cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, uh, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And it is the same man of compassion who says, I wish it were already kindled. He's also distressed over what is soon to take place in his life. Look at the next verses. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until that is accomplished. Maybe he wants to get the fire kindled because he's ready to go through what he's about to go through. Is it not interesting that just a few verses earlier, Jesus was telling his disciples not to be anxious about their lives. And here, Jesus is distressed about what he's about to go through. And yet it's his distress that he's about to go through that's going to make it so that they don't have to worry about their lives. He understands the weight of what, he is, about to, what is about to take place. That the wrath of God will be poured out. That the just punishment of what the disciples deserved, of what the people in this massive crowd will have deserved, of what we deserve, will be laid on him. And he's saying, I cannot wait to get that over with so that I can cry out, it is is finished. This is the baptism that he looks forward to. The baptism not by water, but by fire. Not in a symbolic death and a, and a raising to new life, but, it, but an actual physical death and a real resurrection, a real raising to new life. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Well, didn't you? Aren't you here to reconcile? Aren't you here to restore? Aren't you here to, to bring healing? Aren't you here to bring peace? Right? Before those, he brings division. He divides all of human history. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. 
And I feel like this is a good time for an in-law joke, but I wasn't sure if it would be inappropriate. <laughs> so I decided not to. The point is that the world will be divided even in homes and families. And it won't be over a presidential election or, or politics. It will be divided over me, Jesus says. The most dividing question in the whole world is what do you do with Jesus? It's sort of the C.S. Lewis model, liar, lunatic, or Lord. You have to make a stand. You have to make a decision. Now, you may not have felt that intensity of division in your life uh, as it relates to within your own household and, and what a blessing that is. But, but for some of you here, that is very much a reality. And for, and for much of the rest of the world, that is very much a reality. It's a very vivid reality. What I find interesting is how much we are praying for unity and, and, and reconciliation these days. And so my question is, what are we actually asking for? Are we asking, uh, as John tells us not to ask in 1 John, that people would be saved by uh, means other than Christ? Are we asking for peace and, and, and unity uh, despite this sort of powder keg of, of emotion and division and intolerance of essentially everyone? Are we asking for a reconciliation that is helpful or, or unhelpful? Maybe we should be praying for more division. Every time people voice their frustration with, with the way things are today, I, I tend to offer a, a different perspective. There, there's so much division these days. Well, it's forcing people to have conversations that I don't think would have occurred otherwise. There's so much disagreement on, on hot-button issues and really any issue. You pick any issue and, and someone's going to disagree with you and probably threaten violence against you. But here's the thing is that now these things are all out in the open. You can't play dumb anymore. You can't just take these things for granted. People need to think critically and come to conclusions that fit with a worldview. Or it's going to be very apparent and obvious that your worldview is incongruent. It doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. It's been helpful to have the Wednesday night's worldview class where we're seeing a lot of those things happening. How does your framework for a biblical worldview fit into what we see and face on a daily basis? There's no more of the, the, the sort of non-viewpoint or a lazy viewpoint. And if we're seeing division in, in churches, hopefully it is shining light into darkness and it's allowing the body to see failings or whatever it may be, struggles, issues, potential failings, potential problems. So I, my point is that good can come from bad situations. Now, we don't necessarily seek these things out, but when they present themselves, there is a great opportunity for going to our Bibles and seeking answers and praying to God for wisdom and then being gracious in our actions. The thing is that there's so many divisions today 
and these days that it is easy to forget that ultimately all things will be divided on one issue, and that is Jesus. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in all the other things that we forget the one main issue. That's why a lot of these evangelism courses are training people how to get conversations back to Christ, get them back to the main issue, the main decision that has to be made. Don't worry about the superfluous things. And then Jesus says, You can discern the weather, but you cannot discern the times. They have seen the blind receive their sight, the the lame walk, lepers cleanse, the deaf hearing, the dead are raised, the poor receiving the good news, and yet they do not recognize what God is doing in their midst. They do not recognize the Messiah. In fact, these were the words that Jesus sends back with John the Baptist's messengers about what they have witnessed and are seeing, because even John asks, are you the one or are we to expect another? Because people were expecting Messiah to to overthrow governments and to raise the nation of Israel. When in fact, Jesus was fulfilling everything that had been prophesied about him. So people can look at patterns in the weather and predict what will happen, but they can see clear as day what Jesus is doing and they recognize nothing. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? I'm always blown away at how generally small Jesus' ministry was. He ministered for, for three years in a tiny geographic area, and yet God in his wisdom and providence uses that to change the world. He ordains that to change the world. And here are Jewish people who know their Old Testament Bibles. They knew the prophecies and couldn't see what was right in front of them. Just as people today cannot see what is right in front of them, which is a decision, the decision which divides the whole world for all of history. But there is something that has been riding through this section of Luke 12, and if you've been with us for any period during this, you will have heard this come up, which is a leadership issue. What Jesus may be saying to the, to the thousands that are, that are, if you remember from earlier in chapter 12, they're essentially stepping on each other's toes. And what he may be saying to these thousands is you don't have to follow blindly the Pharisees on spiritual matters. Decide for yourselves. You weigh the evidence. You come to your own conclusions. We suffer terribly from groupthink these days. I suppose people always have. Think of the early days uh, for the reformers. Everyone is uh, marching blindly to the beat of of the Catholic Church's drum. But a few step out and say, wait a minute, there's something off here. This doesn't align with what Scripture is actually saying. This is an unhealthy, unbalanced view. 
Now it's just more opinions, uh, more options rather, for falling off into bad teaching and and bad theology. It's, It's permeating our culture. So to push them to understand the urgency of a decision to be made on their own, Jesus gives a parable to illustrate. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The assumption is that your opponent has a good case against you. So that if it reaches the judge, you're going to be thrown into prison and you're never going to get out. The, the Roman Catholics use this illustration to argue for purgatory where a sinner can pay his way out of, uh, of prison. That, that's a stretch and it's not really supported anywhere uh, in Scripture. It's unbiblical. But Jesus' point is simple. If you know that someone has a case against you, settle it up before it's too late. And from the context, we know that Jesus wants us to apply this spiritually. God has a case against every sinner, against every person through human history. We owe him for our debt of sin. And Jesus' death on the cross is the only acceptable settlement What's amazing is he says in the parable, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. He says that knowing that the only acceptable payment is that baptism of fire that distresses him. There's great weight in in his words here. And yet very few of them, if any, understand the weight of those words at that time. Again, it wouldn't be until later, till the, the, the coming at Pentecost, where the Spirit would open the disciples' eyes to see and understand what it was that he was saying at that time. If we discerned the times, we would know that now is the day of salvation. God is offering to settle in full his claim with any sinner who will trust in Jesus Christ. But if we do not settle, there will be no escape on the day of judgment. We will never get out of hell because our debt is infinite since it is against an infinitely holy God. The person who discerns this, the, the, the reality, the truth of this situation will be quick to get on Jesus' side. So what is all of this telling us? Certainly we feel the evangelism bent here, the need for a decision to be made. But on top of that, as we have been looking at this through the lens of of discipleship, we recognize that division is a reality in, in a world where everyone is screaming for peace while they tear one another down. And so I remind you of the earlier verse we read from Luke that I quoted from the beginning in the birth announcement where the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The peace that Christ 
offers is peace with God. Peace that does not drag you before the magistrate to hand you over to the jailer to be thrown into eternal prison. Peace that surpasses understanding. Peace that equips you for dealing with your circumstances. Peace that not only says in the end everything will be fine, but also that everything now is being worked out for my good and for God's glory. And there is no peace treaty ever signed that will give you that peace. It's not just the absence of trouble but it's the lens of God's goodness. And as we said earlier, we need it when division takes place in our world, in our cities, and in our homes. All the more reason to build one another up. To have the message of the gospel on our tongues with those we come across. That they too may settle with their accuser before it is too late. And so we feel that evangelism pressure. We, we, we understand the reconciliation, the cost that it cost Jesus. That it caused him great distress, but he looked forward to it. And so we can rejoice in these things that he has paid the penalty and that we put our trust in him and we can have peace, even in an unpeaceful world. This is good news. This is good news. Let's pray together and ask that these things would be true of each of us. Father, it's not hard to see division in our world uh, against so many different lines of thinking, of, of philosophy, of, of politics, of um, creeds and race and they're endless. And yet your word is telling us that there is only one great division that's going to take place ultimately, and that's those who are with you and those who are against you. And so, Father, we want these things to weigh heavy on us, that, that we would have understanding of this weight. And that as we put on gospel lenses and see truth, that we would, we would see a world that is facing this great division. And Father, you have equipped us with good news. And so, Father, would that good news be on our hearts and not kept just to ourselves, but that it would be taught to our children, that it would be shared with brothers and sisters in Christ and in encouragement, and that it would be taken to the uttermost parts of the world. Father, that you would use us for these things for your glory that your name would be lifted high and that peace would be found with those with whom you are pleased. So, Father, use us this day. Use us this week. Let these words challenge us in new ways. For we pray this in Christ's name.